phenomenologically based, again, to use a very modern word, but coming from the Greeks, and that the Buddha was, in fact, a great phenomenologist. He took our life experience and deconstructed it. He broke it apart in such a way that we could see for ourselves what, in fact, was the things, the conditions, the way that we created our own suffering. And it is that power of his to do that 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 has brought us all here tonight and has kept this tradition alive for over 2,500 years. This way of meeting life, this way of finding an ease, a sense of well-being, a sense of, of meaning in our lives through coming into it through a kind of direct experience. And part of his teaching, one that is so modern, is that he treated this as an individual experience. A.E. Pasico, come see for yourself is the invitation. A.E. Pasico, come see for yourself, come explore, come discover for yourself. Such a powerful uh, uh response to the human condition because we find ourselves in this very uh, uh, untenable or un, uh, un, uh, unresting, insecure kind of uh, experience of being consciousness and yet being animals having consciousness embodied in an animal that is is born and dies. That is a dilemma. It's an existential dilemma. It's a prior to any particular beliefs you may have from the way you were raised or the, the any religion that you're part of. It is it, it exists as a fact. It's a, it's a prior, it's existential to whatever why it's like this, where it came from, where it all goes. Before any of that, because those are all conceptual uh, explorations in some way, the fact is, life is like this, as my teacher Ajahn Sumedho says. This moment is like this. Being excited is like this. Uh, uh, Being curious is like this. Back pain or knee pain is like this. Or being disappointed is like this. Or not knowing what to do is like this. It's existential. It's there just now as a life experience. And this is the moment you're alive. So it's how you are responding to this in this moment that is your life. Just in this moment. You may have all sorts of opinions and concepts about it, but your life is in this moment and how you, how you interact with it. And so we find ourselves... And, and as human beings have from the very beginning with this strange a kind of challenge where in one sense we're supposed to be responsible for our lives. I mean, who else can be? We have to be responsible for our lives. Simultaneously, we can't control it. Life happens all the time. I mean, you can think of the number of things today that happened in some way other than you would have had them happen just in your personal life. 
And then think of the things that happened to friends, people you cared about today that you would have be some other way. One of my students wrote today to say that she has, uh, that she, her cancer has come back and come back in a very severe way. I would not have had that happen with her. But life happens. And then when we think of the entire world and all of the, the billions of us living on this planet and all the things that are happening in ways that we would rather not have them happen. This is an existential dilemma. It's phenomenologically based. And our minds and our hearts and our bellies all get involved moment to moment in how we meet this how we meet this. What are we supposed to do? How is it we're supposed to make our way given the truth of this situation? And for that reason, when I was uh, writing about these teachings that, uh, uh, that have meant so much to me, I named the book Dancing with Life because in my own experience, life dances. And it dances with you. It dances with me. And it's going to dance with me however it's going to dance with me for the most part. However it's going to dance with you. Good things are going to happen. Unpleasant things are going to happen. Scary things are going to happen. And that's not a choice. Just to prove that for everyone in here. Try just for a moment to not have life happen in this next moment. Anybody succeed? Life happens. It is existentially true. It's phenomenologically true. You can observe for yourself. Life happens moment to moment to moment. We actually distract ourselves from that truth over and over again. T.S. Eliot put it, we distract ourselves from distraction by distraction. Because it's, it's too scary. So we get a little distracted by by that scariness, but that's that the, the scariness, the uncertainty, dist, that's distracting, so that's too much, so we then want to distract ourselves from that distraction. And so how do we do that? Oh, well, we flip the channels, or we open the refrigerator door, or we go pick a fight with uh, somebody living in our household, or we uh, we go into a mood, or we learn to just be with the moment where we don't need to distract ourselves from distraction, that we're willing to show up and be a dance partner with life when it chooses to dance with us in whatever way, form, or fashion. And when we choose to be a dance partner, then we bring our mindfulness, we bring our loving kindness, we bring our compassion, our intention to be present in this moment of our life to the dance of life. And sometimes in doing that, we affect a bit what happens. Other times, we don't affect the external of what happens, but we affect our internal experience. So sometimes something that untowards might have been happening and the way you're present for it changes it so it's not so unpleasant, not so harmful to yourself or another. Other times, bang, it just happens. But the way you met that, the way you, the way you were present with it, actually changed your internal experience of it. Mm -hmm. 
you were in fact dancing with life. In doing that, you are practicing the way the Buddha taught. Because the Buddha is in fact teaching us to dance with life. To move from a reactivity like, oh no, this is unpleasant. Oh, I've got to, I want to avoid that. Or, oh, this is unpleasant. I want to get rid of it. Or, oh, this is pleasant. I want to keep this. Or that's, that's really going to be pleasant. I want to hold on to more of this pleasant. I want to go get this and hold on to it. So like a puppet on two strings. It's called Vedna, this, this arising of pleasant and unpleasant. That's the second foundation of mindfulness in the Buddha's teachings. So we're like puppets on these strings of if it's pleasant, we dance this way. If it's unpleasant, we dance this way. And the, the untrained mind, the unliberated mind, the monkey mind, you can just watch. It'll go from one thing or another, just bouncing, looking for the pleasant, looking to avoid the unpleasant. To me, that's not how I wish to live. I don't wish to live that way. I prefer to dance with life, to not be simply reactive, but to respond. And this is what the Buddha's teachings were, how to respond through the Eightfold Path to life. To respond where? From your deepest values. Not necessarily based on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant what's going on. You come and meet life. You dance with life from your deepest values. You do not let the pleasant or unpleasantness control. Do you still want to have the pleasant happen? Of course. But you're not living your life as a slave to it. That's the liberation of the Buddha. In doing that, there's a kind of of moving from victimhood in life to a kind of what I term co-creativity with life. It's not that you're equal partners with life. There's only a little bit of co-creativity on our part. But that little bit goes a long ways, at least in my experience. goes such a long ways in terms of actually what our inner experience, our felt sense of being alive, our felt sense of being men and women. What does it feel like, this, this sense of that we are participating in this different way in our own experience? So I had been uh, concerned with these questions from my mid-twenties in a very formal way. I'd At around 23 or 24, I became... Uh, a Raja Yoga person. Uh, and Raja Yoga involves uh, a certain amount of meditation, a certain amount of uh, tantric practices. And um, I had sort of stumbled into that uh, more by accident than by uh, some great wisdom on my part. And had become uh, quite devoted uh, yogi in this uh, with you know, hour and a half, two, two and a half hours of practice a day in the midst of a workaholic life. And I would go off to this ashram. I, there's asana practice and all. As part of that, I did my asana practices. I'd go off to this ashram and study for uh, a week or two weeks at a time and come back to my workaholic life. And I would, when I, I, I started experiencing in my 20s in these retreat situations that I would I would get out of the the strings pulling me. I would I would have a kind of ease and well-being 
that was really grounded in something greater than my ego's needs. And it felt really good. The problem was that when I'd go back to my regular life, those feelings would fade first after a few days, but then the more I got used to it, it would fade quicker and quicker to the point that uh, I would be on the plane, I would I would be leaving this ashram in this wonderful state. By the time I got off the plane at my home, I was already back into this grasping mind. And so it became a real, it became a, a conundrum for me. Well, what is this? And so then I started saying, well, okay, I'm going to make my, all my other moments of my life my practice. And those of you who've been to my Sunday evening class in Corte Madera, that's what I teach is dancing with, is this uh, the, the living the Dharma in daily life, this kind of dancing with life and, uh, and, and the very practical ways using the Dharma. Um, because that that was has been my interest all of these these years now, almost four decades actually, and so um, and 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 so I I I became more and more skilled at in those days since I was a, uh, a yogi I would say okay each work situation is a stretch it's just one more posture so if I'm having to deal with uh, uh, a budget crisis this is like doing a headstand. And uh, if, if I'm having to deal with a difficult uh, 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 personnel situation at work, uh, you know, this is like a backbend. It's a stretch, and I'm being stretched. And so to rather than get caught up in the, in the story of it, just treat it as one more yoga posture. And that really helped, really helped a lot. But still, there was this uh, lack of a kind of ground I, it wasn't, I had not found my way in, in doing this. And then uh, one day a friend said, hey, I, there's this kind of meditation called Vipassana meditation. And uh, I was living in New York. I was uh, editor-in-chief of Esquire. And uh, he said, well, you want to go up for a, a, this retreat and see what it's like? And I said, sure. And so I went up in the middle of winter to this retreat center in Massachusetts called IMS. Many of you have been there, I bet. And I did my first uh, Vipassana meditation retreat in the middle of a kind of ice storm. And I get there late, being the workaholic, of course. I had to stay at the office to the very last moment. So everybody else was there, and they'd already had their first sit and everything. I walk in the door, and there's a little notice on the bulletin board, we're in silence. You're late. You'll be sleeping here. And then, oh, by the way, and the by the way was that where I was sleeping was in the former gymnasium of this uh, building because this building had been a uh, uh, Catholic uh, uh, center for for priests. And the, the and so they had in those days it was still the gymnasium because they had not had enough money to make it and to transform it. But the pipes had burst, and so there was there was about oh an inch of water on the floor, and so I had to go in and never having been to one of these places at all. I had to, and everybody was walking around in silence. So I have to go down these stairs and I had to walk through this water and sit on my bed and take off my shoes and put them on the windowsills. This is where I got to sleep. So it was not an auspicious beginning of my relationship to Vipassana. And so many other aspects of that retreat did not suit me, including the fact that they said you don't control your breath. I'd spent years learning to control my breath and had learned to find all these bliss states through controlling the breath. And now suddenly I'm not supposed to control my breath. I thought these people don't understand anything. And yet, 
there was something there in the Buddhist teaching that was coming through uh, uh, these particular, uh, this one particular teacher to whom I was did not relate well at all. But despite that, I could feel something in the Buddhist teachings that led me to really start to explore this path. And uh, after, after that first retreat, I went to another and another and another, not actually finding uh, initially what I was looking for, but keep thinking there's something here, there's something here, there's something here, until finally I ran into a couple of teachers that I really related to, and, ah, this is going to be my home. And that's how I learned to start using Vipassana to dance with life. And then many, many years later, I'm here, or I guess it was here, at a retreat. And I, by this point, I've already been teaching Vipassana. And uh, I had heard for many years about this wonderful teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, but had never had the opportunity to sit with him. So I'm in a situation, actually we were in this room, before the retreat started, and I meet him for the first time, and I go, this man is the genuine article. This is freedom. This this ease in his being is the very thing that that we are looking for. So I was quite impressed and uh, very inspired. And then uh, we go up the hill, and because uh, that was in a small group before the retreat started. We, we go up the hill, and... Uh, we're having this retreat, and uh, I, I'm having a really good time uh, with him. And uh, but the second or third night, he announces, "Well, I'm going to be uh, teaching the Four Noble Truths for the rest of this retreat." Well, now by this point, I'd heard the Four Noble Truth Dharma talks three, four, five hundred times, so it wasn't exactly my favorite <laughs> that I would have had him choose as a topic. But on the other hand, I was so thrilled with him in general that I thought, well, fine, and I just, I'll go with this. But then he actually started talking about the way the Four Noble Truths were taught or presented in in this one text called the Samyutta Nikaya. It's one of the uh, 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 collections of the suttas or teachings of the Buddhas. And that's different than the way I had ever actually heard it before. And he presented it as a teaching of 12 insights of which each insight is to be realized. And that you can approach the Four Noble Truths instead of as a philosophical statement, you can, you can approach them as a means of practice. For those of you who are new, the Four Noble Truths, which was the Buddha's very first teaching, and it's the teaching that all the yamas, all the schools of Buddhism, agree contain all the other teachings. So it's the first turning of the wheel, this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, after the Buddha had had his night of enlightenment and his seven days sitting in bliss. And it's, it's, it's the first of the Noble Truths is that there is there is. Dukkha, there is suffering. Suffering is their narrow translation of a word that's, dukkha is wide ranging. It's from if something's overcooked or undercooked, or if you're late, or if something terrible, horrible has happened. It's all dukkha. It's this, it's the nature of things to go wrong. It's the, it's the stress of life. It's this kind of pressure that you've always got to keep 
going in life. You've always got to brush your teeth. You've always got to eat. You know, you all of these things. It's there's all these different kinds, which if we have time, we'll do a bit of a description of those different kinds. And so there's there's this dukkha. That's the first noble truth. There's this um, this challenge to life. This kind of suffering. This kind of unease in life. And the second noble truth is that there is a cause of this suffering. There's a cause of this dukkha that can be known. And that and that comes from clinging, attachment, grasping after things. And that's the second noble truth. And then the third noble truth is that there is a cessation, a naroda, an ending of this suffering. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path, an eightfold path, that when walked, when practiced, leads to this cessation of the cause of suffering and therefore brings about the end of suffering. So these are the four noble truths. Heard them, like I say, three, four, five hundred times in terms of Dharma talks, but I never heard them taught, never heard them presented as a means of practice. Each of these noble truths has three insights. The first is the insight of the intellectual statement. There is, there is dukkha in life. You think about that intellectually. You go, is that true or not? You can think about life the way you've observed it. And that's the first. It's a, it's a, it's a use of the old coconut, uh, which we all like to think in the West. So you can think about it, and and you can use deductive and inductive logic to go, was well, this true or not? For each of the four noble truths, the first insight is this kind of intellectual uh, practice, and then the second insight of each for each of the four noble truths is the actual practice. So you actually go in, so with the first noble truth, the, 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 the second insight of the first noble truth, which is the noble truth of dukkha, that, that's the first you think about that intellectually, then secondly, you actually go in and feel the ouch in your own life of the truth of dukkha. And that's the second part, this actual practice. And then the third part is the, the realization that yes, Yes, I directly know this, this individual experience, not a belief, but this intuitive knowing, this direct experience. Yes, I know suffering. Ajahn Sumedho refers to it as knowing that you know. And for me, I teach it as this integration into your whole life. This knowing that you know, that you have this realization. I really know this. I know the truth of this. It is so empowering when we reach the stage of a realization. That we know, we know. When I teach uh, senior students that have had a lot of practice, when, uh, this particular uh, teaching about the 12 insights, for them, this has been the most startling, the most liberating of the, that teaching of this uh, Four Noble Truths in this way, this knowing you know. And so many of them have said, you know, all I've had all these years of practice, and no one's ever explain to me or open the possibility that yes, I can know that I know. And it's there in the very first, the Buddha's teaching there in the Samyutta Nikaya. So these are these 12 insights. As I was being exposed to these, I had this uh, aha moment repeatedly, night after night, in which all of these different insights that I'd had and all of my years of experience, it's like someone was connecting all the dots. And it really changed the way that I teach 
and uh, more relevant to myself, it immediately changed the way I practiced. And I really started incorporating this. And so in, in Dancing with Life, uh, I, I take us through in a very uh, modern-day life form what it would be like to go through these 12 insights. And to just give you a feeling for uh, how the Venerable Sumedho Again, for the new students, Ajahn is like teacher. It's, it'd be, it would be sort of like Swami or like, uh, but not exactly, sort of like guru, but not exactly. It's sort of like honorable, but not exactly. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's an honorific that has come from a, a certain amount of time. And so this is what he, he says about the Four Noble Truths. I have observed how rarely the practical use and applications of this essential teaching of the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha are are taught and practiced in Theravada countries. I stumbled over that, sorry. Even in the Vipassana movement in the West seems to only pay lip service to it when in fact the Four Noble Truths are a lifetime's reflection. I find it quite mind-boggling that in the Buddhist world this really profound teaching has been dismissed often as a primitive Buddhism. So, uh, uh, this was the Buddha's first teaching, this is, and this is a way for us to get to know it intimately for those of us who are interested. Why would we do so? Why would we take uh, this kind of teaching as a practice? And it has to do with the fact that life is challenging. It has to do with the fact that we're both supposed to be responsible for our lives and yet we're not in control. How do we deal with the paradox of this? Uh, Ajahn Sumedho's teacher was the great Thai teacher of the last century, Ajahn Cha, who was a, was a was Thai forest teacher and was a uh, very uh, intense kind of uh, strict practitioner of, of living the Dharma. And he puts it this way. There are two kinds of suffering. Two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you're not willing to face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. So, this willingness to to experience the the fire of our suffering so that we can that we can in fact come to the end of suffering. Two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering that is distracting ourselves from distraction but distraction or the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Being willing to be present moment to moment in our lives when it's difficult to feel this difficulty, to be mindful, to open to it, to feel it in our bodies, to feel it in our hearts, to be willing to dance with it as it dances with us, and to bring our values, our intention, our wise intention, the second of the Eightfold Path, Sama Samkapa, our wise intention to this moment, which is a very humbling process. 
because sometimes the only thing we can do in a moment of our pain or the pain of someone we really care about is to be attentive. There's nothing to say, there's nothing to do that can relieve the difficulty. It's just difficult. But that very act of being attentive changes it somehow. It changes it. You uh, all would know from being around children that when a child uh, falls down and scrapes their knee and they come running, oh, you know, I've hurt my knee. And maybe you can uh, put a Band-Aid and clean up the blood or something. But the real thing that matters is you're holding that child. The holding the child somehow liberates the child's mind from this contraction into the pain. And then at some point they're ready to go off and start playing again. It's that same way of our attentive to our own life that empowers our life to go forward, that allows us to be the best of ourselves, to not be defined by our fears, by our uncertainty, by our disappointments, not being defined by our wants and by the things that we don't want. It's not that the wants and dislikes, not wanting, go away. They stay. The physical pain stays. The disappointment stays. But what has changed is how we experience it. We, we move to this radically different experience of our lives. So uh, tonight, uh, to just focus just on this first three insights of the first noble truth, because that's really all we have time for. So there is suffering. There is dukkha. Dukkha not getting the parking space and having to drive around. You know, dukkha and uh, not having the food in your refrigerator. <laughs> dukkha and having an illness. Dukkha and having a difficult uh, relationship with someone you care about. The dukkha of having to work and it being hard and unfair and lots of pressure. The dukkha of money. The dukkha of health problems. The dukkha of not knowing what you want. The dukkha of restlessness. The dukkha of boredom. The Buddha uh, uh, broke down dukkha as, as to being of three kinds. The first he called dukkha dukkha, the kind of physical and emotional pain of life. And then the second kind of dukkha is the fact that everything's always changing. So it's this kind of a Nietzsche dukkha that, that uh, uh, it, you can never get something right and then that's taken care of. It always changes on you. You know, it's the most simple thing. You, you get your, your teeth cleaned, but then the very next day you've got to brush them again. You, you, you feed your body, and now it's fed. But then a few hours later you have to feed it again. And on and on and on. Nothing. You, you, know, you, you meet someone, you really like spending time with that person, and you marry them, or you, you, you're into this long-term relationship, or you're having a good time that evening. But then the evening ends, or if the relationship goes on, then it turns out there's all these difficulties, then there's all these other things you want, and on and on. There's, it's it's this, the dukkha of change. And then the third kind of dukkha is the, the fact that it's called Sankara dukkha. It's the kind of dukkha where there's not, you don't ever really get to any place like, okay, life's taken care of. 
it's because there's not there's this uh, first of all the truth that you're going to die. What do you do with that? <laughs> you know. So there's an existential angst in that, but there's also this that it's always it's always composed by all of these different conditions, and there's all these conditions are changing, and 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 it's there's not a there there in a certain way in conditioned life. And I, I refer to this as kind of the bittersweet dukkha. Because life has its wonderful parts. This whole book is about how you find joy and meaning in life. So, And the Buddha talked about all the different kinds of happiness. Which, by the way, in one of his lists of happiness, he talks about the happiness of being debt-free. So even in the Buddha's time, there was debt and financial problems. So uh, so there is this 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 joy and happiness to be found, this sense of meaning to life. But it has to be found in the context of the truth of dukkha. So that's the intellectual consideration. And then the second insight is this knowing, under, it's, it's termed understanding dukkha by penetrating it. So you actually... Show up in your life when the, it's difficult. You notice, okay, there's dukkha in this, there's dukkha in that. You you feel it. You feel what I call feeling the ouch of it, as I said earlier. Feeling the ouch of dukkha. And it's not just in the tough moments, but even in the good moments. So knowing that there's this, this sweet moment and knowing it's going to end, that's dukkha. This is such a great hike we're on. Oh, but this hike's going to end. That's not a glumness, but knowing the truth of that. The truth of it. In fact, as you learn to be with the dukkha in that way, it makes the hike, sweet, the hike sweeter. Things become more poignant. You're staying present in the moment for your life and seeing it as it is. This moment is like this, opening to it. This is the penetration uh, of, of understanding dukkha. So that you, you stay present. And you come to realize, oh, it's true. Not that you conceptually at this point, it's not that you know in your whole body, your whole being, yes, part of life is dukkha. This is not a glumness towards life at all. In fact, it's quite open towards life, quite open. When you can be present in life, what's sweet in life is more sweet but if you can't, if you're distracting yourself from distraction all the time because the angst, this existential angst of life, is, you have to sort of stay a little bit away from it to live a little bit apart from your life, to be a little bit distracted because at any moment you would know the, the full truth of dukkha. When you're a little bit away from life, you don't actually get as much of the fullness of the joy of life. So to give you an example, you're back on that hike and you've walked up Mount Tam and there the sun's setting and it's so beautiful and you just, you're, you're just, oh, this is so wonderful and you so appreciate it. And then the mind starts thinking, you know, I need to do this more often. I wish so-and-so was here. Why don't I do this more often? You know, that's fine. <laughs> Are you there with the sunset? Nada. Gone. Gone. Caught in past and future. Why? Because you couldn't stay in the moment. You weren't planning in that moment for something like that was going to help you get more hikes in. 
You were just commenting. You were jumping back into past. Why don't I do this? I don't do this. This is, I've missed all these opportunities. Da, 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 da. Or used to, I could do this, but now my body hurts and I can't do it as often. All of these different kinds of things. Or, oh, I got to do this more often. Or, da, da, da. or why isn't so-and-so here? You know, I, I should have called so-and-so. Uh, endless kind of spinning, spinning. That's dukkha. That's dukkha. But you're missing the dukkha because you're not present. So this willingness to be present. Uh, throughout the book, I quote T.S. Eliot. Uh, and he so stresses in the from the four quartets primarily because it's such a Buddhist teaching. Although he was a devoted Anglican Christian, he said that he could just as easily have chosen Buddhism. And he stresses so much this importance of the present moment. And there's uh, it's being in the present moment, the sacred now is quite popular in our culture. But there's in all of these. Uh, teachings that are out there about being present. There's very few teachings that actually uh, help you, instruct you in how to practice being present in the moment. And that's what's so marvelous about the Buddha's teachings. He actually is given all of this practical instruction about how to notice, how to be present in the moment, and how to uh, withstand being present in the moment. And so that's the second insight of the First Noble Truth. And one of the challenges for us to be with our suffering in this way is that suffering has a bad name. <laughs> suffering has a bad name in our society. I mean, just just think about it. Do you want to say, someone says, well, how are you doing? Oh, I've been practicing being with my suffering. <laughs> in fact, uh, I sometimes joke it, it's in our society, because suffering has such a bad name, you, it, it would be if the Buddha was having to do his, 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 uh, the, this Four Noble Truths, he'd have to say one crummy truth and three great truths, or one disgusting truth and 12 insights that will help you get rid of it. There's this feeling. And why is that? In part, it's because we have, we have such a success-based society that winners, we're supposed to be winners, and winners don't suffer. So there's a sense of one, there can be a kind of uh, ego humiliation around our suffering. Things aren't going well at work. Things haven't turned out as I'd hoped they would. Well, my relationship, you know, I thought that being married was going to be one way, but it's turned out it's got all these other aspects to it. Uh, And there's a kind of uh, humiliation feeling to that that stops us from just being with it because we've got to kind of protect our ego. Or there's this sense in terms of admitting to others uh, or talking about being at ease with it. There's kind of a, 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 a kind of a shame as though that we, we have, we, we've not lived up to like the way we're supposed to be in our society, that there's this suffering. And so therefore, it's, it's suffering something to be a little bit ashamed of. But no, everybody suffers. Uh, because of the particular life I've lived uh, in in my New York years, I was around the winners in our society at all times. I mean, I was I was I was in the midst of them. I wrote about them, had lunch with them, uh, uh, interacted with them in all these different ways. And then in my current life, in addition to teaching the Dharma, I have a, 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 a 
institute, a nonprofit called the Life Balance Institute, in which I deal with leaders. And leaders come in and uh, 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 we talk about their lives and we evaluate what's next in their lives in terms of leadership and how do they sustain leadership and so forth. So I have had, uh, what, 20, 30, 30 years of exposure to the cream of our society, those that we all look up to in some way. I've never met anyone in, in all of our regular life that isn't experiencing dukkha, that isn't experiencing suffering. Dukkha is part of life. The ones who are doing well are the ones who are not uncomfortable with it. The ones who actually have a happiness and an ease in their life. They, it's, it's part of life. It's part of life and they're willing to be with it in that way rather than distracting themselves from it by distraction. Do most successful people, most leaders, do they show up that way? No. They too distract themselves. They distract themselves by one more accomplishment. That's one of the main ways they do it. But they're the exceptions. Ajahn Sumedho being a wonderful uh, personification of that exception. But it's not just, it's the, uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught Dharma. So we're not teaching Buddhism, we're teaching Dharma. We're not practicing Buddhism, we're practicing Dharma. You may think you're, you may identify with yourself culturally as a Buddhist or not identify yourself culturally as a Buddhist. That's not our concern. Our concern is the Dharma. The Dharma is universal. It doesn't belong to the Buddha. The Dharma is universal. It's the truth of life. Life is like this. And how from life like this, how you relate to it in such a way that it brings joy and meaning in your life rather than collapsing, contracting into the, to these mind states around uh, of grasping and, and attachment. So this is the opportunity. This is the possibility. So this guilt, this uh, this kind of uh, that around our suffering, we can have this feeling of that that oh, it's an ego humiliation, an ego defeat, and therefore we can't we can't do these first three insights very well. There can be this uh, shame, this kind of that oh, I'm that uh, that I, I'm a failure. In, in terms of others, so I have to create this this false person. I can't be my authentic self, which includes the suffering, and so much so that we actually forget little pieces of our authentic self. We they just kind of disappear from our conscious awareness, and then we're at a retreat or we're sitting, and suddenly some piece of that authenticity comes alive, and it feels like we've come home. Such a a blessing of the practice. And then the third reason that we are so uncomfortable with our suffering is that oftentimes we go, oh, well, I must be inadequate. I must have done something wrong. I'm not good enough. So this, 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 and there's a guilt about that. So guilt, uh, this kind of shame, or this kind of ego defeat, humiliation, it stops us from being with suffering. It stops us from dancing with life. And if we can't, uh, be with our suffering, it's so difficult then to do the second noble truth, which is to, to see that there is a cause of suffering. Because the second noble truth, the way you practice the second noble truth, you, you, the first insight of the second noble truth is that there's a cause of suffering, it's clinging. But the second insight of the second noble truth is that this truth is to be 
penetrated by abandoning the cause of suffering to let go of clinging. That's, that's, that's a very difficult practice to do if you can't be with the clinging in the first place. So, uh, so many times on retreat, I, I encounter students who are all into the second noble truth about the, the, all this clinging and I want to understand attachment. I want to understand clinging and I want to stop clinging. I want to stop attachment and all of this. That's great. That's a wonderful aspiration. But I find myself saying to them in the individual interviews, well, let's go back to your actual experience right now. Tell me about this difficulty and we be with it together. We be with their emotional difficulty or we be with their physical difficulty and we practice, we go through being with that and having a kind of uh, uh, attending to it without being uh, swept over by it, swept under by it. One common misunderstanding is that the way we practice mindfulness is that there's this distant observer the observer, the observer. Uh, and I liken it to uh, like you were going to be, if you take a barcode reader in a supermarket, and so here's a, here's a container of milk going through, and it may say out loud, and it registers on the machine, milk, 349. That's accurate. The milk costs three forty nine. It is in fact milk, and it knows which brand it was, and it's probably already sent a message off saying, "Oh, we've got one less in our inventory, and all of this." So it's a good observer, but it doesn't know the taste of the milk. It doesn't know what wetness is. It doesn't know how milk and Oreos go well together. <laughs> Do you want to be the observer like that barcode reader? Is that what? Is that what winning in life is? Is that what's finding joy and meaning? I don't think so. I certainly know I don't want that. I don't think that's dancing with life. Dancing with life is knowing that wetness, the sweetness, knowing the the the, the difference of liquid and 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 um, and, and uh, solid substance mixing in the mouth, the thousand explosions of that, the feeling of a, a hand on a cheek the taste of a kiss. That's life. Showing up for that is dancing with life. But the showing up is to observe it from within the experience, the first foundation of the Buddha taught, knowing the body and the body, knowing the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant in the pleasant and unpleasant, knowing the mind states in the mind state so that you're willing to be there. This takes courage. This takes genuine courage. But it's not a kind of invincible courage. It's the courage to be with, with the bounce, to be with the up and down, to be with the movement, to be with the dance. That's the opportunity of the practice. And when we do this, we are in fact uh, being being choosing that second kind of suffering, the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. To just uh, two quotes to end with and then just to, uh, have a few minutes for questions. Uh, uh, the Buddha talked about uh, how every sense gate is burning. And by burning, he means that every sense gate can, can lead you 
to a kind of grasping. So you can see something and you can want it. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Or you can taste something and you want more of it and overeat. <laughs> or you can, you can uh, have the felt sense in the body and uh, something in the mind, all these different sense gates that they all are on fire. And the, he, he said, what do they burn with? They burn with the fire of greed, hatred, and delusion. This kind of, this getting caught in it. And yet, there we are. We're, we're caught. We start where we are. Uh, if you were going to leave here at the end of the evening and say you're sitting over here and you imagine that you're going to get up and leave from over there, is that going to work very well? Don't think so. And yet many times students in their practice actually start where they're not to try to get to somewhere. And you have to start where you are. So where you are is a person who, who is, is mostly getting caught in clinging and you're grasping. That's not a horrible thing. It's in, it, that's a perfectly fine place to start. It's how your practice being with how you are. That's the practice. It's not being some way other than you are. How you are is just fine. It's learning how to be with. And Eliot puts it much more poetically. He says the only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. This willingness to show up in your own life moment to moment to know the fire of your life. And then um, uh, this, this sense of being with life in this way this dance. Eliot puts it this way, neither from nor towards at the still point, there, there, there the dance is, neither from nor towards the, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement and do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance. And there is only the dance. The still point is this moment. And this moment. And this moment. And this moment. That's the still point. We all intuitively know this already. That still point when you're showing up just now. Your past is gathered and your future is right here in this moment. But when you're lost in past and lost in future, there's no genuine relationship to life. Because you're lost. You're not here. You've not shown up. How can you affect? So this moment, this moment, this is dancing with life, moment by moment. So just a few moments for questions. And I appreciate how attentive you've been this evening. It's been a pleasure to do this with you in this kind of stillness. So any, any question or comment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.